Good morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, and we'll pick up where we left off last time. <clears throat> I love the Word of God. Every book is different, and there are all kinds of books in the Bible. Poetry books, uh, prophecy books, letters to people, letters to churches, and even history books. And I'll tell you, when you read a history book in the Bible, it's not like any other history book you've ever read because it's history uh, from God's point of view. And you see things you'd never see anyplace else. So that's what we're studying. The book of Acts is a historical book and uh, it's a history, particularly of the Lord building his church. <clears throat> now, we've seen, we, we want to remind ourselves constantly, keep standing back and seeing the overall flow of things. And as I've said many times, Remember, what we're seeing here is the early um, battle going on between uh, the Lord and his people and the devil and his forces. And uh, within a very short time, the devil made his first attempt to, to try to uh, quench this early uh, budding of the people of God with a frontal attack, intimidation. We saw that the last couple of weeks. And uh, as Second uh, Corinthians says, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. We know what he's up to. Now as believers, and we should be aware and know how to respond. And the response, as we saw in the early church for intimidation, was simply preaching the gospel with boldness and praying and leaving the rest to God. <clears throat> Whether it's uh, dealing with our opposition, our persecutors, or always uh, giving us fruit for the evangelism. He's, he's the one that does that stuff. Well, this week now, as we said, the devil's a smart guy and he's going to change his tactics. And really, it's probably been his most successful uh, instrument or tool, if you will, over the centuries, and that is to attack the church from, with, from within, inside. <clears throat> We're going to see that when we get into chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's uh, pick up, though, we, we need to finish off chapter 4 first. We'll begin in verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. <clears throat> But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each <clears throat> as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> First of all, I want to point out that phrase we've been seeing over and over again here early in the book of Acts. You saw it there again in verse 32. That they were of one heart and one soul. This is the fifth time We've seen a phrase like this, of one accord, of one accord, of one heart, of one soul. When God repeats things, you know what it means? It means it's important. Yeah. So we can't stress enough the unity, the necessity of the unity of the people of God if God is going to use them effectively. And that applies to us as well. <clears throat> and certainly it had a lot to do with the uh, fruitfulness of the early church. Now, we see here what a lot of um, ignorant, 
commentators have called Christian socialism or communism here. Nobody had anything of their own. They shared everything in common. Well, that's communism. No, let's be clear about this. This is not socialism. First of all, there's no state to which all of the things are given. That's a definition of socialism. This is not socialism. It's a theocracy. Okay? A theocracy is a place where God rules. There's no room for God in communism, as you know. But it's really, it's, it's, it's the ideal uh, state of, of believers, isn't it? it? It's interesting. They're, they're not doing this under compulsion. People aren't just giving up things because they're made to do it. It's the, quote, natural response of the new believers to their changed lives and their position in Christ. Suddenly, all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. And it, the wonderful thing is there's no more poor in the church. Not any rich either. It just works out that way. But it, it, the focus is not on the things. That's the whole idea. They're not that important anymore. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ and on getting the word out and witnessing to his resurrection. That's, that's it. Their lives are consumed with that now. And all this other stuff just doesn't matter anymore. It's interesting that um, Paul addresses this kind of a lifestyle later in the uh, letter to the corinthians he's actually talking about the issue of a marriage but in it he talks about this this idea that as believers if we're truly saved we should have a new focus in our lives the big central part of our lives should be the lord jesus christ and serving him and if there are other things certainly they are we have jobs we have cars you know possessions they're just peripheral things Uh, because we have to have them to get along in life this is the way he says it but this i say brethren the time is short so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none those who weep as though they did not weep those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away this i say for your own profit not that i may put a leash on you but for what is proper and here's the key and that you may serve the lord without distraction that's really a healthy christian life you know the other things in my life don't crowd out jesus jesus is the center and the other things are just there because sometimes they have to be and you certainly see it here in the lives of the believer early believers in the early church Uh, there's been talk i know i've heard the brethren talk about it possibly expanding uh, the facilities here and possibly trying to take out walls you do that sometimes in a building like this you know like we could have that extra space out there added if you could take out that wall right there when you when you take on an, uh, a situation like that there's a problem you can't always go around randomly taking out walls because sometimes they're holding up something they're called load-bearing walls you heard that phrase before I believe that's a load-bearing wall, isn't it, Don? So as much as we'd like to add another uh, eight feet to this room, it's not that simple because that wall right there is holding a lot of weight. <laughs> and if you took it out, things would come falling down. Well, the illustration there is for us as believers. We should only have one load-bearing wall in our lives, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And yet I've told you, 
the, probably uh, the, the greatest illustration of this to me personally has been seeing people where I work at the lab. We recently had to lay off two people whose lives are their jobs. That's a load-bearing wall in their life. And it's, it just breaks my heart to see these people personally when they lose their job. It's like taking that wall out right there. All of a sudden, their life just collapses because their life was that thing. And when that thing is taken out, they have nothing left. And they just, they fall in a heap. And it could be any other thing. Think about your own life. Are there load-bearing walls in your life? Take an inventory. Is there something in your life that if God were to suddenly remove it, you would fall in a heap? Now, if it's the Lord Jesus Christ, that's great. That's the way it should be. But if there's something else, then Jesus is saying, you need to knock that wall down now and put all the weight on me. And you see that in the lives of the early believers here. One load-bearing wall, the Lord Jesus himself. Well, because of this uh, overflowing, abundant lifestyle of the early believers, not surprisingly, we see the word great occur twice in verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. Uh, we often make a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. Well, this is where the physical and the spiritual meet. It's possible, by the way I deal with physical things in my life, that I can actually limit the spiritual working of God, depending on, on how I handle them. And here, uh, they're letting go of those things. And so God is free to work. <clears throat> Jim Elliott, I think many of you know who Jim Elliott was, missionary to the Aka Indians. Uh, boy, half a century ago now, he was martyred for the Lord in the jungles of uh, Ecuador. <clears throat> but he kept a diary. And uh, this guy, I'll tell you, he had wonderful uh, vision of serving God and he had such a way of putting it. You can quote just about every other line out of that diary. And a lot of it had to do with his desire to be freed from the tyranny of things in his life. You can see it in his writings. And God honored that desire, by the way. Because when he was martyred in Ecuador, he was unencumbered. You know, He had a wife, but she was not an encumbered. She was a, a helpmate to him in his desire to serve the Lord. But just listen to... His thinking, it's, it's, very, it's very biblical. I'll just give you three quotes. Number one, he, here's a prayer he made. Father, let me be weak that I might loose my clutch on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions, Lord, let me loose the tension of the grasping hand. Isn't that good? Let me loose the tension, you know. Got to hold on to that stuff. He says, let, let me let go. I like that. Another time he said, God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Asbestos doesn't burn. That's why he chose that. Saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be a flame for you. Isn't that good? And then, of course, uh, probably is best known. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, Jesus said that. He's quoting Jesus. If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. He who saves his life will what? Lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake shall what? 
find it. Amen. That's it. So simple. And yet sometimes for us, so difficult. <coughs> well, clearly, word's going to travel fast when people are behaving like this. <laughs> I'll tell you. And uh, the Christians became known throughout the, the, the world at that time. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, the very famous quote in the histories was, people would say how those Christians love one another. And it's because of lives like this. Uh, we see people uh, selling land. Real, real, I didn't realize real estate was big in those days, just like it is today, huh? People had property, houses, and they would sell them. And then they'd put the stuff in the bank and give God the interest, right? No, they'd buy a CD, right? Is that what it said? You see what it said? They took the proceeds. That's everything. The money. They came to the apostles and they laid it at their feet. All the money. Woo! That's Holy Spirit inspired living. <laughs> You're not going to see that in the world. And uh, we can certainly believe that they laid all of it, except for a certain family, which we're going to see in a minute. It's not that they were compelled to do it now. There's no... The apostles never said, okay, anybody's got land or property, you've got to sell it and bring us the money. Again, it was the work of the Holy Spirit in these young believers' lives. And I love this guy, Joseph. I wish I could have known him. We've only got two verses on him, but for some reason, God singles one person out. It says that uh, anyone who had possession, so a lot of them were doing this, but for some reason, God chose one by name and put him in the eternal word of God so that for 2,000 years now, people have been reading about this guy and this act of sacrifice. I love it. I wish I could have known him. His name is Joseph, or some of your translations may say Joseph. It says, he was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. Isn't that great? The apostles, seeing this man's life as a believer and the consistency that he had they gave him another name. They called him, no, your name's Barnabas. Isn't that good? Imagine what that must be saying about the guy. This guy was consistently there when you needed him. You know, when maybe there was a little discouragement, this guy was there to pick up the spirits of the saints by something he'd do or he'd say. I love guys like this. They're hard to find. Son of encouragement. That's what the word Barnabas means. He's, a kind, he's an ideal brother. He's the kind of guy... You know, that uh, if you're an elder, he comes and says, here I am. No conditions, no restrictions, no limits. Here I am. What do you want me to do? That, that, that's the kind of guy you want, you know. That's the kind of person the Lord wants. Someone who just comes and says, you know, no grasping hand, open hands. Here I am, Lord. Use me. That was, that was Barnabas. I love this guy. And it says, he had some land. We don't know how many acres it was, where it was. All we know is that he sold it. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's not an act of worship. He knows better than that. All this, the apostles, all the saints knew it better than that. What it is, imagine you've sold some land. You've got a check today. Right? I don't think we bring cash. you know, And, and you lay it at the, at the apostles' feet. It's an act of saying, here you go. I'm, I'm letting go. It's yours now. Not mine anymore. That's the idea. That's the picture here. You know, total surrender. <clears throat> well, there's a dark cloud on the horizon. 
But don't worry, the Lord's going to dispel it. But we're going to see the dark cloud here now. Turn to chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. It's interesting, if you were to be a, a third-party witness to this transaction, that is, you're, maybe you're standing there wherever this happened, maybe at uh, the, uh, the porch of Solomon, it's a part of the temple where they spend a lot of time, we don't know where, and you see Ananias uh, come up and lay the money. Outwardly, it would look just like Joseph or Barnabas, wouldn't it? You'd have no idea that there was a difference. It'd look exactly the same. And, and you'd be sitting back there and you'd say, wow, praise the Lord, there's another one. You know, isn't that wonderful? The work of God. And yet, whose work is it? What did Peter say? Yeah, isn't that interesting? He said, why has Satan filled your heart? You know when the last time we heard that phrase, Satan filling somebody's heart? You know when the last time we heard that was? It was Judas. That's a scary thing. And so we can say, yeah, this is the work of the devil. He is personally involved in this transaction. The devil himself. It wasn't some, you know, second-rate demon. This was the devil himself in Ananias' heart doing this. And you'd never know that unless God revealed it. And in this case, God revealed it to Peter. God is very concerned about the purity of his church, a lot more than, than we are sometimes. We're to be holy. And early on, God is not going to let the devil get a foothold inside the church. And so that's why the drastic action here. He's going to send a message to everybody, the believers and those outside. Uh-uh, we're not going to have any of this hypocrisy here. We're going to have sincere Christian lives. And so this is Satan's second ploy. Remember I said last couple of weeks has been the frontal attack. Here it is, the Satan, he's a smart guy, you know. Let's get inside. Let's get some counterfeit Christians in there, you know. Like I said last week, it's like taking a cup of hot tea and putting an ice cube in it. It just brings that spiritual temperature right on down. Or really, that's, a, that's my own metaphor. God's metaphor is in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
What God is saying there is, you got uh, undealt with sin in a believer's life somewhere in the, in the congregation. That believer may think, well, you know, it's, it's just affecting me. He says, no, it affects the whole body. I don't know if you thought about it, but isn't it interesting that there, this is a parallel episode with what happened with the nation of Israel? Isn't that interesting? God called the nation of Israel, brand new people. He's bringing them into the promised land. They have a wonderful victory, just like here, from the preaching and all the people saved at where? Jericho, right? They turn around, go up to Ai, and they are soundly whooped. And poor Joshua was down on his face and praying, crying out, how can this happen? You know, we did so good at Jericho. What happened? And God says, get up, Joshua. I'll tell you what the problem is. Because Joshua had no way of knowing. Whenever you have sin, deceit, and lying almost always accompanies. You know that? <clears throat> and it was the case here as well. <clears throat> so Joshua never would have known unless God told him. And there was this guy, Achan, uh, that they find out, who when they had went into Jericho, he'd taken a Babylonish garment and some gold and buried it in his tent. And they were told beforehand not to do that. <clears throat> Interesting. It's the same sin, covetousness. Isn't that interesting? And God, as you know, he had him killed. It was the death penalty, just like here. I think God is trying to show us, you know. Now, praise God, we don't get killed every time we sin. There wouldn't be a church, you know. But he's teaching us something there in both cases. There's a strong parallel there. And you can find it in the Old Testament and the New because it's in both places. Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's it. Set apart. Different. A little bit of sin in the camp pollutes the whole camp. <clears throat> so in both cases, God acted swiftly and decisively. You know, as I was reading this <clears throat> and thinking about the devil, we can learn some lessons from him. He reminds me of a great general, the great generals of the past, from Napoleon to Robert E. Lee. I'll tell you why. Listen to these characteristics. Number one, when he strikes, he strikes hard. When he strikes, he strikes early. He generally strikes from more than one direction. He strikes at the weakest point, And he never surrenders. That's a sharp guy. I'll tell you, man, we need his persistence. <laughs> we need his ingenuity. And we need his zeal. Well, there's a key phrase here in verses 2 and 3 talking about Ananias and Sapphira. It's, it's actually repeated. And as I said, when God repeats himself, it's important. The phrase is kept back. In verse 2, it says he kept back part of the proceeds. In verse 3, uh, Peter asks him, why did you keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? <clears throat> There's a deeper problem in their lives. When, when there's a physical holding back, you know what? It's a symptom of a deeper problem. There's a holding back inside. And that was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira. They'd come and they'd said words, but they weren't Christians. We know they weren't Christians because Satan filled his heart. Satan's not going to do that to a believer. And so they came and apparently, you know, they looked and sounded just like other Christians on the outside. But it was just um, a nice chocolate exterior with no chewy center. 
It was just a shell, just outward. Like I said, you could outwardly look and see them laying the, the money and you say, wow, look at those believers. But there had been a holding back inside, you see. And they never really turned their lives over to Christ. Elders have to deal with that all the time. I remember you see people make professions and, and years go by, but there's no fruit in their lives. I mean, spiritual fruit. No, they go to meetings. They talk about Jesus. You know, uh, they'll tell you what a nice sermon you preached and they might even read the Bible sometimes. But there's something missing. And it's this. They kept back, you see. And only God can know that. When they came to Christ, <clears throat> they went through emotions. They might have even prayed prayers. They might have even wept. I've seen that before. But there's that holding back. And God sees it. And he won't make a deal. Think about it this way. You go down to a, uh, an automobile showroom. You want to get a new car. And there's one that just catches your eye. You test drive it. You know, man, this is the car for me. You, you write the check for 25K or whatever it is. Pay cash. And uh, the dealer takes you out to the lot and gives you the one. You pick the color. There it is. You get in. He says, there it is. Here's the keys. Your key to happiness. And you get in. You put it in the ignition. And you turn it. And nothing happens. You suspect something. You get out and you lift the hood and look inside. And there's no engine. <laughs> you see, they decided to hold something back. Is that a good deal? That's a useless car. Now you tell me something. Would you follow through on that deal? What would you do? I'd ask for my money back. Exactly right. I'd say, I'm sorry, you got no deal here, buddy. Okay, you can keep that car. Well, you see, that's what Jesus does. Many, many people I know have come to Jesus and they want something. But deep down inside... They don't want to give up that engine yet. You know? And so they give them a key. <laughs> but it's a key to a car that doesn't have any engine in it. There's a shell. It's a frame. And they go to church. And they read the Bible. And they do all the outward things that other Christians do. Like Barnabas. But as time goes on, there's no work of the Spirit in their lives. And it becomes clearer and clearer. And First John, the test of Christian life, just doesn't apply to them. And that's the mistake of Ananias and Sapphira and of many people, I think, since then. There's no sale, you see. You, you wouldn't pay your money for something like that. And look, just because I said I gave my life to Jesus, if I kept the engine back, you might have thought you did, but he didn't take it. There was never a transaction to begin with. That's why he says when all those people come to him, he says, many will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do great works in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me. Listen to his description of them. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. What he's saying is there was never a transaction there. You thought there was, but it didn't take place. It makes sense, huh? Look, he's paid in advance for the whole lot. He paid a big price. And he's not going to accept anything less than the whole thing. <clears throat> Jesus, don't, just like no more than we don't want a gutted car, he doesn't want a gutted life. It's useless to him. <clears throat> I remember uh, 
gene in dealing with, with people who uh, had been professing for years and yet there was no fruit, real fruit in their lives. He had, a, he had a phrase for it. It was called defective consecration. That was a phrase he'd use. Defective consecration. Consecration's, uh, uh, you know, um, setting aside for it. It's a synonym for sanctification. Being set apart. He's saying when those people set themselves apart, it was defective. There was something missing. Well, uh, we can certainly get application we just have from this passage. That's the first one. Be careful about holding back from the Lord. It can be fatal. Secondly is, now we don't go around uh, <coughs> slaying people on the spot. Peter didn't do it. Of course, it was the Lord. But we, do, we should learn the lesson of holiness, purity in the local church. God is trying to communicate that here. He's saying, look, nip it in the bud. <clears throat> and so we have a thing called church discipline. And uh, yes, some of you old timers, you know, we've, we've had to exercise it here more than once. <clears throat> It's judgment. Response to sin in the church, particularly certain sins, should bring discipline. Judgment. Here's the passage in 1 Corinthians 5. Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Notice he doesn't say, he doesn't know. He just says named a brother. Professing, we don't know if the person saved or not. Who, and here's the list, is sexually immoral or, notice, covetous. Just had it or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. As I read this again, it's interesting to me, and I've talked to several of the brothers about this, um, as an elder, I was involved in several cases of, of discipline for sexual immorality. And it's a very difficult thing, let me tell you. It's probably the hardest thing you have to do as an elder is to exercise discipline. But you're moved by two things. You want to see the, the individual restored. More importantly, you want to see what God wants to see here, and that is the preservation of the purity of the local church, the holiness of the church. Uh, and so I've been involved, and every time here, it's been, I believe, sexual immorality. And generally, that's what it is elsewhere that I know of. I've never heard of a case of anyone being excommunicated for covetousness. It's second on the list here in 1 Corinthians 5. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> now, there's one of three things. Either it doesn't exist anymore. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> or it's very difficult to establish that that could be or it's just not considered that serious in fact sometimes if somebody's got a lot of money that's a good thing you know if they're willing to spread a little round to the church you know <clears throat> it's interesting jesus didn't have that trouble the rich young ruler comes up here's a guy that uh most churches would welcome with open arms what must i do to inherit eternal life oh man brother Come right in here. I forgot to tell you, he's rich. Rich, young ruler. So Jesus uh, began with some of the commandments. Amazingly, this guy says, oh, I've kept all those for my youth up. Woo! That's pretty good. Obviously, this guy has a blind spot. Well, the Lord Jesus, being God, knew exactly what the problem was. It was number two on the list here, covetousness. 
<clears throat> so I love his, it's called the direct approach. Jesus got right down to it. He says, you only, you only lack one thing. One little thing. Just go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Isn't that good? Now you're thinking, that's salvation by works. No, it's not. It's an evidence of true repentance. And if he sold everything he had and followed Jesus, he would have been the happiest man in the world. In fact, we can take Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, you'll have treasure in heaven. Well, if he'd done that, he would have had treasure in heaven. So don't feel sorry for him if he would have followed through on it. Problem is he didn't. Because the next verse says, and the man went away sad because he had much riches. Isn't that sad? Covetousness. Covetousness. Holding back. Not just goods, but my life. We see it in the end times in the church. We've already read a couple of passages over the last month on the church in the end times. Second Timothy has that phrase, lovers of money rather than lovers of God. And uh, the church at Laodicea, remember what they say, you know, I am rich, have increased with much goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, no, you're blind and you're poor and they don't even see it. It's ironic that the church in Laodicea says they have need of nothing. That's what it said here about the early church. No one lacked anything. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Except here it's true. And in Laodicea, in the church where they, they're physically rich, they're spiritually bankrupt, and they not only have nothing, they need everything. Well, uh, God intervenes in this particular case. The, the apostles could not have looked inside the heart at that point, and, and God was so anxious to keep his church pure that he intervened in a miraculous way. So let's see the result. Verse 12, chapter 5. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dare join them. Can you blame them? After Ananias and Sapphira? But the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all, all of them, healed. Well, I don't tire of pointing it out. Here it is, number six. I see some smiles. I guess some of you picked up on it. There it is again. They were all with what? One accord. There it is again. I think it's important. Unity. And uh, I, I love this. Says no one dared join them. Boy, I kind of wish the church was like that today, huh? You know, that way you know what you're working with. Too often the church today is bending over backwards to get the numbers up and get as many people to join as possible. You know, that wasn't the Lord's way. And of course. Uh, God blessed in so many ways. Many people were saved, it says. And you see signs and wonders, true signs and wonders. Notice it says they were all healed. Can you imagine emptying out the hospitals and bringing all the people there and every single one of them is healed, just like 
in the ministry of Jesus. This is real healing, okay? <laughs> well, I talked about great zeal earlier. Uh, you certainly see it in the believers. You see it in the devil in his opposition. But uh, I should say this. You see great zeal in the Lord Jesus Christ here in building his church. You know, I think the Lord Jesus Christ wants to see that work that he did on the cross put to good use. Don't you? Think about it. After opening the doors to heaven, it, it, it must grieve him every time some soul goes into eternal hell needlessly because he died for them and they didn't have to. He wants to get the word out. I like, I like the way Paul puts it in Second uh, Corinthians. He says, um, Therefore we plead with you as though God were, were pleading through us. I beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the way Jesus would do it. So he's zealous. We need to share his zeal. And the uh, other application from the passage <clears throat> is this uh, holding back, you know, defective conse consecration. The amazing thing is in reaching the world of the lost, the Lord has chosen to use us. <laughs> Praise his name. And uh, I, we often sing that song. <clears throat> Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord to thee and yet i think sometimes we may mean it this way take part of my life and let the rest be because that's consecrated lord to me that was ananias and sapphira once in a while i'll get a i'm a computer geek as you know my occupation I'll get some software. It's called a demo version. You ever had a demo version of some software? Yeah, I, you're laughing. Yeah, because the thing about a demo version is it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, does it? It's free. And so it doesn't do the stuff you want it to do. It does just enough, you know, so you say, man, I wish I could blank. And you can if you pay the hundred bucks. You know, the demo version, it's hamstrung, it's stripped. That's what we do too often to Jesus. Give him the demo version, you know. The problem is he already paid in advance for the whole thing. What does Paul say? What do you not know that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Eloquent words, you've been bought with a price. He doesn't say what it is. He just leaves it to your imagination. Bought with a price. What is the price that Jesus paid for you? Yeah, death, his death, his blood, not gold and silver that are corruptible, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. He doesn't want the demo version. He paid for the full 100%. All the features are there, the car with the engine. And so he's worth it. You agree with that? So let's not be those that give, give him a crippled offering. That's what the crippled animal in the Old Testament offerings is a picture of, crippled disabled not all there not fully functional you know can you use a car without an engine we would refuse to even go near the thing a saw without a blade a hammer without a handle they're useless 
Jesus refuses to even touch a tool that's not all there. I don't blame him. It's all or nothing. So here's my desire for myself on all of us. May we be a church full of Barnabas, Bar, pardon me, Barnabases, who come like Barnabas and say, you know, with open hands, Lord, here I am. It used to be all mine, but now it's all yours. Do with it whatever you want. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we often sing the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Interesting word, survey. It means to take a long look at. Perhaps we need to do that more often. Because if we did, we'd come to the conclusion of that hymn writer when he said, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. Anything less would be an offense. Use us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen.